my campers. Welcome to Museum Camp. I'm Megan. I'm Madison. Hello. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Immature History. Yay. Welcome. Welcome. We're going to read you some articles, Bebe. Yeah, babies. Are you first? I think you are. Oh, oh my God. Last week you ended with beanie babies. Speaking of babies. How could I forget? How could anyone forget? (laughs) Um, I'm going to read an article about ticker tape parades. Okay. And this is from downtowny.com. Okay. Invented in 1867, ticker tape was a one inch wide ribbon of paper on which the ticker machine recorded telegraphed stock quotes. Mm-hmm. Brokerage firms using the ticker machine proliferated in lower Manhattan, then as now the city's financial district, and provided an abundant supply of scrap paper. In the latter part of the 19th century, skyscrapers replaced low buildings and turned the narrow downtown streets into stone canyons. Office workers quickly discovered that ticker tape sent swirling into the air created a dramatic effect. Contemporary accounts of the earliest ticker tape parades describe the cascade of scrap paper as a spontaneous gesture on the part of spectators inspired by the festivities outside their windows. As the practice grew, city officials recognized the promotional value of ticker tape parades, classic capitalism. So classic. (laughs) And began to plan them as a function of municipal government. (laughs) From 1919 to the present day, the mayor of New York City has decided who will receive a ticker tape parade. The first officially organized ticker tape parades welcome, welcomed home the victorious soldiers of World War I. New York City customarily greeted important foreign visitors with great fanfare. In the 1920s, the ticker tape seen as a modernization of the ancient ritual of strewing flowers before conquerors, it became routine to hail arriving heads of state with a paper shower. Also just like can't be good for the environment, but, no. <laughs> um, but, but we're it's great, great for capitalism, <laughs> great for capitalism. Um, <laughs> the city started a tradition of recognizing champion athletes with the ticker tape parade for the American Olympic team in 1924. The massive, uh, The massive reception for pioneering aviator Charles Lindbergh in 1927 attracted millions of spectators to lower Manhattan and made the ticker tape parade famous around the world. Wow. I'm going to skip all this information. It's a lot of stuff on Lindbergh and like, we all know that story. We know. We know that guy. (laughs) Uh, The city staged 130 ticker tape parades from 1945 to 1965. That's so many. It's way too many. That's, listen, I don't want to do the math, but I think that's like six a year. It's a lot. It's too many. (laughs) Um, More than half of these events greeted visiting heads of state, usually at the request of the U.S. State Department. 
Oftentimes, these parades were direct or indirect extensions of U.S. foreign policy objectives, particularly at the height of the Cold War. Patriotic display, an important element in all parades, prevailed in ticker tape receptions of this era. Returning World War II leaders, uh, troops sent to fight in Korea, retiring high-ranking military personnel, and foreign dignitaries all received ticker tape parades that prominently featured men and women of the armed services during this period. Uh, By the early 1960s, there had been so many ticker tape parades that they came to be viewed as synthetic and routine. Love (laughs) when we overdo something so that the magic is lost. Yeah, we really beat it to death. We really did. The city had to deliver confetti and shredded paper to buildings along Broadway to ensure an appropriate cascade of paper for the occasion. Uh, Businesses in Lower Manhattan complained of disruptions. The parade seemed anachronistic to many Americans who were beginning to question authority and shun patriotic display. God forbid. Oops, God forbid. (laughs) Um, And I think that's where I'm going to stop. They go into some mayoral stuff, but like Mm. mayors, Mm, you know. Come on. We don't take you guys seriously. Settle down, mayors. But yeah, ticker tape parades when people just threw paper out the window. <laughs> Great. We're all doing amazing. Just <laughs> the world. Job. New York. Is just still recovering. Yep, truly. Yeah. What you got? Um, Megan, today I have an article from Wikipedia, especially for you. This is Thank one that um, one of my favorite things about doing this podcast is that um, I'll just get texts out of nowhere from people who, and all it is, is like a link to something weird on Wikipedia yeah. or something. So this is um, something that my sister sent me with no context. Beautiful. Um, so shouts out to Claire. Shout out Claire. This is the Wikipedia article for crime in Antarctica. Oh my God. Okay. Those penguins. I mean, you really just have to keep an eye on them. (laughs) Yeah. This is honestly so good. Okay. I mean, crime is not good. It's not funny, but sometimes this is funny. Um, Okay. Okay. While crime in Antarctica is relatively rare, isolation and boredom affect certain people there negatively and may lead to crime. Uh, this is a bummer. Alcoholism is a known problem on the con- continent and has sure. led to fights and indecent exposure. Oh, I'm going to say that almost any exposure in Antarctica is indecent because it's, it's so gonna cold be that it's going to fall <laughs> off whatever you expose. Absolutely. Other types of crimes. Frostbite. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Other types of crimes that have occurred in Antarctica include illicit drug use, torturing and killing wildlife, yikes, um, racing motorbikes through environmentally sensitive areas, assault with a deadly weapon. It is cool. I mean, not the environmentally sensitive areas part, but you know. Uh, Every area in Antarctica is environmentally sensitive. They're just saying that to put you on a guilt trip. Yeah. Um, assault with a deadly weapon, attempted murder, and arson. Oh now, God. here's where I got a little bit worked up about this article because they just went um 
you know, on, they listed all these crimes and then, you know, ended the sentence, new sentence, sexual harassment has also been reported. Okay. Come on, Wikipedia. Is it Wikipedia or is that a slam on the justice system? Are they saying like, you know, it's not treated as a crime on the mainland. So Mm, maybe fuck you guys. Yeah. Fuck you guys. Robberies are rare and unlikely in Antarctica because people entering cannot bring many belongings onto the continent and because very little use for money exists in Antarctica. Sure. I mean, imagine all the people living life in peace. Um, Yeah. What would you need money for? Just bartering with seals. Seals. Under the 1959 Antarctic Treaty ratified by 53 nations, persons accused of a crime in Antarctica are subject to punishment by their own country. Um, Now there's a section on national laws applying to crimes in Antarctica. Don't care about those. So we're going to skip over and read list of crimes in Antarctica. Perfect. (laughs) Some of these are just, I I mean, they're too much. Yeah. 1959. The Vostok Station, then a Soviet research station in Princess Elizabeth Land, was this, which is a hilarious name for a place. Princess Elizabeth Land. Oh my God. Uh, was the scene of a fight between two scientists over a game of chess. We've all been there. We've all been there. When one of them lost the game, he became so enraged that he attacked the other with an ice axe. Oh my God. <laughs> According to some sources, it was a murder, though other sources say that the attack was not fatal. After a KGB investigation, chess games were banned at Soviet slash Russian Antarctic stations <laughs> by the Antarctic Soviet. I feel like we are, I, I don't feel like we're really addressing the problem here, friends. So that seems like not the right solution. I not mean, the right and they solution. have so little to get joy from down there. How are you going to take away? Yeah. Chess. I mean, like you chess, can't even hurt anyone game. with the chess piece, really. Like, yeah. if anything, put more regulations on ice axes, you crazies. Yeah, you crazies. You crazies. Um, okay, April 12th, 1984. <laughs> the Almirante Brown Station, this one's not actually funny, uh, is an Argentine research station located on the Coftree Peninsula by Paradise Harbor. We all know where that is. Uh, We all know Antarctica, like the back of our hand. Absolutely. (laughs) The station's original facilities were burned down by the station's leader and doctor on April 12th, 1984, after he was ordered to stay for the winter. So he was so, he did not want to stay for the winter. So he just burned everything down. Risky move. (laughs) Risky. Yeah. Uh, The station personnel were rescued by the ship Hero and taken to Palmer Station, an American research station on Anvers Island. The station was about 36 miles apart by air. Huh. Um, this is a big yikes. October 9th, 1996, at McMurdo Station, a fight occurred between two workers in the kitchen. One worker attacked the other with a hammer. Another mm. cook tried to break up the fight and was also injured. The two victims were Tony Beyer and Joe Sturmer. Both of them required stitches. FBI agents from the United States were sent to McMurdo Station to investigate and make an arrest. 
the suspect was flown to Honolulu, Hawaii, which why are you sending someone who just beat someone up with a hammer on vacation? Yeah, come on. Come on. Where he faced charges of four counts of assault with a dangerous weapon. He pleaded not guilty. So no further information was publicly available. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, this one is crazy. May 11th, 2000. Mm-hmm. Uh, at the Amundsen Scott South Pole Station, an American research station located at the South Pole, Australian astrophysicist Rodney Marks had a fever, stomach pains, and nausea. On May 12th, he died. It was believed at the time that Marks died of natural causes. It was the onset of winter, so his body could not be transported for six months. His body was put into a freezer at the observatory. Oh, my God. After the six months were over, Mark's body was flown to Christchurch, New Zealand for an autopsy. The autopsy concluded that he had died from methanol poisoning. (gasps) How the poisoning occurred remains a mystery. I want to write a mystery novel about that. That's a really good novel idea. Also, they didn't need to take up freezer space because of how it's Antarctica. Yeah, but then you risk, outside. you know, him getting eaten by like a seal. Or... Oh yeah, that's true. I guess you, you tracked some of that. Yeah. Um, this one is such a wild ride. This is the last one. Um, it's, it's bad. It is bad. Um, so okay. this is October 9th, twenty eighteen. So the second October 9th on this list so some bad juju in antarctica on october 9th okay uh so on october 9th 2018 a stabbing occurred at the bellingshausen station a russian research station on king george island the perpetrator was i know come on guys get it together um the perpetrator was sergey savitsky a 54 year old electrical engineer he stabbed oleg belogozov a 52-year-old welder, in the chest multiple times. According to some sources, (laughs) according to some sources, the attack occurred because Belogozov was giving away the endings of books that Savitsky checked out at the station's library. (laughs) (laughs) That was, that's literally so shitty, but also absolutely something that I have done but in the sense where like I went through a phase where I thought it was so funny to tell people the ending of Sixth Sense if they told me they hadn't seen it okay (laughs) which is not funny it's not funny it's kind of but when I was younger I thought it was hilarious and I'm so glad I didn't get stabbed (laughs) yeah yeah honestly you thank god missed it by a hair yeah um other sources say that the attack occurred in the dining room when Belogozov teased Savitsky by telling him that he should dance on top of the table to make money. Uh. <laughs> so both accounts, and this will shock you, say that Savitsky was believed to be intoxicated at the time of the attack. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, they had so the two had worked together at the station for about six months, and Savitsky was apparently having an emotional breakdown. Being in a confined space may have been a major cause for this, which mm. you know, that'll do it. I, that'll do it. Both uh, Belogozov and Savitsky had had problems with each other for several months. 
Belogozov was sent to a hospital in Chile. Savitsky surrendered to the manager of the station and 11 days later was placed on a flight back to Russia, where he was placed on house arrest until December 8th or 9th. Mm. On February 8th, 2019, Savitsky was at a preliminary hearing at the Vasilyostrov District Court of St. Petersburg. Savitsky was remorseful and was willing to accept a criminal punishment rather than rehabilitation. Uh, which I feel like, you know, rehabilitation is an option. Take that. But yeah, what do I know? Belogozov was forgiving of Savitsky and proposed dropping the case. The public prosecutor was supportive of Belogozov's proposal and noted that Savitsky was remorseful and had no prior criminal record. Judge Anatoly Coven decided to drop the case. Um, And that are that is all the crimes listed that's every single one of them that's all that's listed i feel like there would be more um because they talked about you know illicit drug use or we didn't get any tea on uh torturing and killing wildlife which thankfully we also didn't hear about i want to hear about racing the motorbikes yeah Um, the drug use and the motorbikes i mean honestly great job guys yeah yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, that's crime in Antarctica. Wow, very cool. <laughs> very cool to be like, um, imagine being just like an Antarctic crime lord. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm cool imagining status. it. It's <laughs> campers, thank you for hanging out with us. Um, please do not commit any crimes. Yeah, we're not endorsing wherever you are or in Antarctica. Yeah. And we'll see you next time. Yeah. Goodbye. Goodbye. Goodbye.